Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Straight Talk with Celine. God's redemption over my life has led to many radical changes in me. One gift God has given me is a hunger for his word and a passion to share it with you. The Bible tells us all we need to know about God, but it also tells us all we need to know about ourselves, and we fail to open it and learn these great truths. A burden that weighs heavy on me is that many professing Christians don't know their identity in Christ. So join me now as we walk through God's word and learn who we are in Christ so we can step into all he's called us to be. Welcome back to Straight Talk with Celine, week three of this Who is Jesus series. And I just want to apologize. I know this episode is going up late, but I've been locked down with COVID, man. I'm just getting out of COVID jail. And I feel like crap. I mean, it is, it's going to be a long episode to get through, but you know what? The show must go on. Life goes on. we got to continue to preach the gospel. So we now are going to take a turn after spending the last few weeks of taking this deep dive into what the entire Bible says about Jesus, Jesus, excuse me, who he is, what he came for, what it means for us as his followers. And all of this matters and it really impacts the way that we see ourselves. And now we, we want to spend the remainder of this season, focusing in on what Jesus said, focusing on what he taught, what he commanded of those who would surrender and follow him. And more importantly, what does this mean for us? And today we want to start our journey through the hard teachings of Jesus by starting at what I feel is some of the most amazing words that Jesus ever spoke, the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes. It was Jesus's longest recorded sermon. Jesus began by describing the traits that he was looking for in his followers. He said, God blesses those who live out those traits. And each beatitude is almost a direct, well, it is a direct contradiction of society's typical way of life. And then in the last beatitude, Jesus even points out that a serious effort to develop these traits is bound to create opposition. Meaning if you pursue this, the world will hate you for it. And I want to point out that the the best example of each trait that we see that we're about to walk through, it's found in Jesus himself. (laughs) This is Jesus. And if our goal is to become like him, applying the Beatitudes will challenge the way that we, we live each day. So what I want to do is look at each beatitude and really digest what Jesus is saying. And then I want to go to the Old Testament. I want to see what the Old Testament says about it. Because as I've mentioned, as I will continue to mention, that the entire Bible is about Jesus. So nothing Jesus is saying now hasn't been said before. Remember, one of the purposes of Jesus' coming was to explain and to fulfill the things of God. He essentially is describing to us what God is looking for. And then I want to look at how Um, what Jesus is saying absolutely clashes with worldly values. And then we will look at how God rewards us. And then lastly, how we develop in ourselves what Jesus is looking for, because we can read the Bible all day long. We can read this sermon all day long. We can read these Beatitudes all day long, but we don't want to just read them. We want them developed. We want these Beatitudes developed in our lives. We, we want this to be the fruit. We want this to be the evidence of our lives in Christ. But first, let's look at the structure of Matthew when it comes to this section of text, because I want to point something out. If we look at Matthew 4, 23, it's just a few verses before we begin these, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew says Jesus is going through all of Galilee. He's teaching in their synagogues. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's healing every disease. He's making, um, you know, meeting the poor. And one, one way to restate you know, this, this verse or this, this, what this is saying is to say Jesus made it his ministry to preach the coming of the kingdom, to teach the way of the kingdom, and then to demonstrate um, the purpose and the power of the kingdom by healing the sick. So Jesus essentially was preaching and teaching and healing. And then if you turn to Matthew 9.35, it says pretty much the same thing. It says, and Jesus went all throughout the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. So sandwiched between these two summary descriptions of the ministry of Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount. 
which essentially is the collection, uh, an amazing collection of Jesus's teachings. And, it, and, and it's on purpose. And this is important for us to see. It's important for us to, uh, to understand. So we're going to start Matthew 5, verses 1 through 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, So first of all, I want to point out that enormous crowds were following Jesus. I mean, he was the talk of the town. Extremely popular, uh, really famous. Everybody wanted to see Jesus. And what Jesus is about to tell his followers is, hey, you, you might be tempted to think that following me is going to bring about this easy life. It's going to bring about some fame, maybe some fortune. Maybe you're going to get a little power, a little prestige. But guys, it's quite the opposite. He's saying, don't expect it. <laughs> expect the opposite. Expect mourning and hunger and persecution. And so who was Jesus teaching here? Well, it says clearly in verses one through two that he was teaching his disciples. But what about the crowds? What does it say about the crowds? Well, if we, if we go to Matthew 7, we look at the end of the sermon, verses 28 through 29. It says, when Jesus had finished saying those things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike anyone they had heard. So it's clear based on that text that the, the crowds were listening and that Jesus wanted them to listen, even though the sermon was primarily addressing uh, his professing disciples. Guys, I love this. I mean, Jesus here is showing us that the word, it's prepared to feed and strengthen and inspire the worship and the life of God's people. But we always pray that there will be onlookers. We always pray that the skeptics will come, that the searchers and the doubters will come to hear this good news. The truth has the power to change hearts. And we want as many people to hear it as possible. So, so first, we must understand from the jump that it, it wasn't just Jesus' disciples here. There were major crowds and it was, it was a mix of people. And so how's the Lord going to begin this sermon? Well, he will begin by pronouncing a specific kind of person and will point to this person being fortunate. We call these pronouncements beatitudes. And this comes from this Latin word, which means happiness or blessedness. And there are eight beatitudes and we're going to break each one down. So we fully understand them in our context. So verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the first one for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I heard John Piper give a sermon on this verse a while back, and it really resonated so much with me because he spoke of a student that came up and asked him if he thought Christianity was a crutch for people who couldn't make it on their own. And pastor John's answer, it was yes. And this student was a bit dumbfounded. And Pastor John then asked him, why was the thought of Christianity being a crutch considered a bad thing? I mean, people don't usually look at a crutch and say that it's a bad thing. I mean, I played basketball and sprained many ankles and I was on crutches for a long time. And let me tell you, those crutches were good. <laughs> I needed them. So, so why does a crutch become bad when it's Christianity? Well, well Pastor John answers, uh, that, that, that most critics of Christianity would say, if Christianity is a crutch, then it's only good for cripples. But, but we don't like to see ourselves as cripples, do we? That, that's, the, that's the biggest issue. It's so offensive to our, our self-sufficiency. And here's the deal. Our society believes that we are not broken and that the real joy and fulfillment in life are found in the pursuit of self-reliance, self-confidence, self-determination, and self-esteem. I mean, see, it's all about self. And it was Jesus who said, those who are well have no need for a doctor. But those who are sick, they are the needy ones. And Jesus longs for the needy to come to be made well. And here's the rub. Any Messiah who comes along and proposes to replace self-reliance with childlike God-reliance and self-confidence with submissive God-confidence and self-determination with sovereign grace and self-esteem with mercy, that Messiah is going to be the threat to the religion of self-admiration. This Messiah it will be met with opposition. And here's the truth. 
This has dominated the world ever since Adam and Eve fell in love with the image of their own independence in the garden when, when the serpent told them, who cares what God said? You're, you're not going to die. You're going to be like him. And that desire, my friends, it still infects our world today. And here's the reality, guys. The only people who will ever come to Jesus are those who know they are spiritually and morally dead. That's it. And to those who don't realize this truth, Jesus is a stumbling block and he will be met with opposition. He, he'll be met with force. Why do you think they killed Jesus? I mean, when Jesus spoke, one of two things happened. Either you were completely broken over what he spoke or you were filled with anger. And that resulted in one of two responses. Either you surrendered to him or you rejected him. And guys, the same thing happens today. So what does this mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit. So simply put, it is the moment you realize your need for God. And this isn't just a New Testament thing. The Old Testament speaks of this. Isaiah 57, 15 says, The high and lofty one who lives in eternity, guys, this is God, the holy one, says this, I live in the high and holy place, and those whose spirits are contrite and humble, I restore. Okay? It says he restores the crushed spirit of the humble, and he revives the courage of those who, who have repentant hearts. Friends, God is saying he dwells with those who are humble and those who are broken. So this whole idea is mind-blowing when you, you think of what the world says. This absolutely clashes with worldly values. The world pushes pride and personal independence. But notice what the reward is for humility and brokenness before the Lord. The kingdom of heaven. Your reward for chasing what the world offers? Well, you run on the hamster wheel of life only to taste death and destruction. And how do we live this? Well, the Bible tells us clearly in James 4, 7 through 10. James gives us five ways. First, humble yourselves before God. Yield to his authority and will. Commit your life to him and his control. And be willing to follow him. Second, resist the devil. Don't, don't allow Satan to entice and tempt you. Third, wash your hands and pur purify your hearts. That is, lead a pure life. Be cleansed from sin. Replacing that desire to sin with, with your desire to experience God's purity. Fourth, let there be sorrow and deep grief for your sins. Don't be afraid to express deep, heartfelt sorrow for what you've done. Lastly, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Friends, we have been programmed to believe that self-esteem is to be cherished, but Jesus is clearly saying, let it go. We must be willing to fall at his feet and surrender self. Guys, we are spiritually bankrupt without Jesus. And the moment we realize this, the moment we receive life. Guys, it's the prerequisite for entering into relationship with Jesus Christ. Friends, let this sink in. Everybody is powerless. Everybody is helpless. And everybody is bankrupt without God. I mean, what do you think John the Baptist meant when he said, I must decrease and he must increase? Less of me and more of Jesus. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Guys, this verse really is an extension of verse three, but let's look at it a little deeper because it's so important that we grasp what Jesus is saying here. So what does this mean? Blessed are those who mourn. Well, Isaiah 61, one through two is a prophecy about this coming Messiah. It would be Jesus who quoted these words as he read to the people in the synagogue. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of, of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus would stop after these words, roll up the scroll and say, guys, the scriptures you've just heard, they've been fulfilled this very day. Jesus had come to set the captives free and to bring comfort to those who mourn. So again, this is another value that is at odds with the world. Blessed are those who mourn. I mean, the world says pursue happiness at all cost. The world says avoid sadness and anything that leads to sadness. But why, why is, is most of the world sad and depressed and addicted? I mean, why are mental disorders running rampant? 
Guys, because people are feeding off of this lie. Jesus is offering those who mourn comfort. He's offering those who are troubled comfort. And this is what we bank on. And how do we live this? Well, the Bible tells us clear in Psalm 51. Go read this psalm. David's plea for mercy and forgiveness and cleansing, it's on full display. He, he realizes his brokenness and he is repenting and mourning and he's giving his heart to God in a way that God desires. He, he desires our hearts to be for him. He, he doesn't ask us to be perfect, guys. But we must recognize who we are. Verse five, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. So as we continue through these Beatitudes, we need to understand something important. Jesus preached this message so that his father would get the glory for the way his disciples lived and, and would live. I mean, his aim was to create a lifestyle in his disciples that would make people think about the value of God. I mean, the most important question that we could, could ask of every Beatitude is, what does this have to do with the Lord? And so we must ask, what does meekness have to do with, with God? How does becoming meek and being meek promote God and give him glory? Well, we have to go to Psalm 37, 11. It says, the meek shall possess the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. I mean, this is essentially saying the same thing Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. So what does meekness in Psalm 37 have to do with God? Well, I want to point out something. If you back up in Psalm 37 to verse 9, it says, those who wait for the Lord shall possess the land. So what this tells me is those who are meek are ones who wait for the Lord. But now we ask, what does it mean to wait for the Lord? Well, if we keep backing up in Psalm 37, we see. In Psalm 37, 5 through 8, it gives us a picture of this. The commands are clear. It says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Don't fret because it only leads to evil. So let's talk about this a little deeper because here is what we need to know. The meek inherit the earth and we want to be on that side of the deal, right? We definitely want to be on that side of the deal. So it says the meek trust in God. The meek trust in Jesus. The meek believe that he will work for them and vindicate them when others oppose them. Biblical meekness is rooted deep in confidence that Jesus is for you and not against you. The meek commit their way to God. They commit their entire life to God. They submit and surrender it to him. Their business, uh, their, their problems, their relationships, their health, their insufficiency to, to cope with all the complexities and the pressures and the obstacles of life. They trust in the Lord to keep them and, and direct them and, and protect them. That's important. Guys, the meek, they're quiet before God. They wait for God. I mean, this doesn't mean be lazy. This doesn't mean take your foot off the gas in life. It just means we're free. There is a calmness in the midst of the storm. God is omnipotent. And he has all things under control, no matter what life looks like. Guys, the meek, they don't fret over the wicked. When evil strikes, when, when chaos ensues, when justice isn't being served, when the small are oppressed, when all things seem unfair, we trust that God has it under control. We don't give way to anger and stress when we're faced with opposition and setbacks. I mean, I think of Jesus, the person who radiated meekness. I mean, he was the most meek of all time. And what made him meek? Well, I think of the Garden of Gethsemane. Because he was submissive to, to the Father. I mean, even to the point of death. I mean, think about this. He lived a life of submission and surrender to the Father. He never needed to defend himself. He handed his entire life over to God, and he was not defensive as he walked the earth. He knew his why. People didn't shake him. People's opinions didn't shake him. And guys, if we're going to be known as meek, we must live for Jesus in the same way. And if we're going to be known as meek, we must do as Matthew 11, 27 through 30 says. He tells us to come to him. Jesus says, come to me, all those who are weary, and I'll give you rest. 
We must allow Jesus to teach us because he is humble and gentle at heart. And when we do this, we find rest for our souls and he shows us the way. And recognize that the world is going to tell you different. The world says, demand your own way. Take what's yours. Pursue power. Fight for your reputation. Get the last word. As Jesus is teaching the exact opposite. He's saying the meek trust God. They commit to God. They wait patiently for God. They refrain from anger. They also refrain from revenge. They refrain from being offensive. Meekness loves to give uh, place to wrath and leave its vindication with God. Meekness is, is, is the power to absorb adversity and criticism without lashing back. But one thing I want to say is do not confuse meekness with absence of passion and conviction and even righteous anger for the glory of God. This is why Jesus said, let us be wise as serpents and innocent, uh, and innocent as doves in discerning what is meekness and what is pride. Guys, let all that sink in. Verse six, blessed are those who, are, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So I think it's only fair to be honest about what we as sinners truly crave in this life. I mean, we all hunger and thirst for things, but do we naturally hunger and thirst for God in his way? No, we don't. But here's the truth. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that God has put eternity into man's heart. What does this mean? Well, it means that God made us for himself. He made us to only find satisfaction in him. And until we truly understand and grasp this, we will be restless and spend our existence searching for, for, um, for, 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 for fulfillment. Jeez, man, the COVID is really something else. Restlessness and, and this longing are universal traits of the human heart. Guys, we... Here's the deal. We have a God-sized hole and only he can fill this God-sized hole. And what do we try to do? Well, we try to satisfy it with vacations and accomplishments and entertainment and sex and drugs and alcohol and career and you name it. But the longing, guys, it only continues because as we achieve, we only want more because it never truly satisfies us. And how do I know this? Well, well, Jeremiah 2 tells us, God says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, for broken cisterns that hold no water. In other words, we have chosen cheap substitutes. We hunger and thirst for wrong things. And this is why the world's such a mess, guys. We, we all have hungry souls and our hearts are thirsty. We all feel this, um, this insatiable longing for something. And we're all told by the world that the grass is greener over there. And God is calling us to himself, yet we turn away again and again and again for the short-term and temporary, which is only backfiring in our face and leaving us empty. I mean, I think of what C.S. Lewis said. He said it so good. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're blessed. But how do we get here since it is in our nature to pursue this? Well, we must notice this verse comes after Jesus has, been the, has said the following. Blessed are those who recognize they need him. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. And blessed are, are those who meekly surrender and submit to God in all things. You, you see what's going on here? When we read these, we can quickly recognize that these characteristics are not ones that, that we long for. Okay, No one wants to be broken and meek. Our, our sin nature wants the opposite. But notice what it leads to. It leads to a different longing. See, our hunger and thirst changes when we come to this place that Jesus calls blessed. And here's the deal. When God opens our eyes to our brokenness, we come to a place where we recognize who we really are. This leads us to Christ. And because of this, it leads to repentance and mourning over our sin. And the next step is full surrender and submission to him. Meekness and humility is what begins to grow in us. And this is what we mature in, into. And what happens during this process is we begin to long and pursue for a righteous life. 
We, we now desire, we, we thirst, we hunger for righteousness. And this is a transition statement Jesus is making here. He is transitioning from emptiness to fullness. And how do I know? Well, we look ahead to what this hunger and this thirst leads to. And you're going to see it leads to being merciful. It, it leads to being pure in heart. It, it leads to, to us being peacemakers. And this life in Christ that I'm, I'm talking about, it, it, it leads to persecution. But Jesus says, wait, endure, hold on. There is a reward. Guys, the kingdom is yours. Are you seeing the structure here? I mean, man, how good is Jesus? Simply put, righteousness Jesus is describing in his verse is defined as those who are being filled with mercy and purity and peacemaking. And not only does he describe it, he shows us what it takes to get there. And I want to point out before we move on that this was an Old, um, Old Testament anticipation. This was not something Jesus just made up on the fly. You go to Isaiah 11, 4 through 5, and Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, it tells us how important the pursuit of righteousness is. It's also weaved throughout the entire Bible. Meanwhile, the world tells you to spend your life pursuing your personal needs, pursue your, your personal desires. You're told that's just going to lead to satisfaction. And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't. Guys, it leads to destruction. Hey friends, did you know the mission behind Broken and Chosen? I once was lost, but Jesus found me and redeemed my life. And since he saved me, he's been teaching me who I am as his follower. I am chosen. I am part of his holy nation. I am a royal priest. I am his special possession. He called me out of darkness and into his light to be a bold proclaimer of his glory. And if you're in Christ, that's your identity too. So follow us on social media to be reminded of who you are in Christ. And subscribe to this podcast for a deep dive through God's word to learn who you are in Christ. And check out our apparel in our shop at brokenandchosen.com to wear your identity in Christ. And lastly, if Broken and Chosen is blessing you, would you do us a favor? Would you leave us a review and also tell a friend about us? Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So in Psalm 41.1, David writes, Oh, the joys of those who are kind to the poor. The Lord rescues them when they are in trouble. So here it is in the Old Testament. I mean, Jesus is not just pulling this out of the sky. He's not only fulfilling this in his demonstration, but he's explaining it to us. I mean, as I always say, nothing that Jesus says is new. Everything that Jesus says has always been. But see, the world tells us different. I mean, this whole idea of mercy, there's no mercy. I mean, it's dog eat dog. May, may the strong man win. It's a savage world that we live in. But see, God didn't intend this to be this way. He created this world perfectly. And, and then pride came in, sin came in and destroyed it. And so what, what do we do if we want to develop um, this merciful attitude? Well, if you go to Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, it tells us to imitate God in all that we do. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ as he loved us and gave himself for us. I mean, it's easier said than done, but it's, it's what has to be done. And since it's what has to be done, let's just take it a step further and answer a few questions about this topic of, of being merciful. So first question, how does a heart become merciful and where does, where does it come from? Well, we answered this already. Based on what we've discovered, mercy comes from a heart that has first felt it's spiritually bankrupt. That the heart has to come uh, to grieve its sin. You have to come to a point of meekness and have surrendered and submitted your life to Christ. And because of those things, you you begin to hunger for the work of, of God's mercy to satisfy you with the righteousness that you need. And so the key to becoming a merciful person is to become a broken person. You, you get the power of showing mercy for, from a real feeling in your heart that you owe everything and you, uh, everything you have and everything you are to Christ. I mean, are you, are you guys getting this? Next question. What is a merciful person like? Well, Matthew 9 Verses 10 through 13 tells us clearly, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And the religious leaders see this and they ask his disciples, 
why is Jesus eating with such scum? And Jesus responds, and we need to hear what he says because this is the essence of mercy and, and, and his expectation. Jesus says, those who are well have no need for a doctor. Guys, it's the sick that need a doctor. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I came to call the sinners, not the righteous. And so Jesus here is quoting Hosea 6.6 6, where God accuses people um, that their, their love is like dew on the grass. There for a brief moment and then gone. And all that's left is burnt offerings. So essentially what Jesus is saying is be alive in your heart. Ha have affection towards me and mercy towards others. He's saying he's not looking for religious duties and lip service. He was expounding here on Hosea 6.6 6 and what it was saying. He welcomes those who realize they are sick and they need him. And he can work with the brokenhearted. Jesus is making it very clear that the weighty matters of this life are our justice, um, our mercy, and faith. It makes me think of the Good Samaritan. I mean, you look at how these two priests left their brother in distress due to the religious ceremonial uh, traditions. I mean, you think about how crazy that is. And then here comes this Samaritan. And remember, Samaritans hated Jews. Jews hated Samaritans. But this Samaritan sees this Jewish man bleeding to death and he stops and he helps him. And he sacrifices much to help him. And Jesus shows us here, this is what true mercy looks like. So how do I know if I am merciful based on Jesus's teaching? Well, the question I would ask myself is, do I see distress in others? And when I see someone in distress, do I respond internally with, with a heart of compassion or pity toward that person? Or do I respond externally with, with a, a practical effort to relieve that person's distress? And what if that person is an enemy? I mean, does that matter? Well, it shouldn't. I mean, mercy responds regardless of differences. I mean, Jesus said, love your neighbor. I mean, guys, that is some, some really tough stuff. So verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So Psalm 24, three through four asks the question, who can climb the mountain of the Lord? Who can stand before the throne of God? The answer, well, David tells us, only those whose hands and, and hearts are pure. Those who don't worship idols and who don't tell lies. And what does the world say? Man, deception, it's, it's, it's acceptable. Do what you have to do. Say what you have to say to get ahead. Again, this is in complete contradiction to what God says. I mean, those who follow the world won't see God. And so what do we do? Well, John tells us in 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3, we are to pursue purity and we are to keep ourselves pure. And as his children, this is what we do. I mean, James 4, 8 gives us a staggering command. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you men of double mind. You know what James is saying here? He's echoing what David said in Psalm 24. He's echoing what John said in 1 John 3. Except he's knocking the legs out from underneath the platform we stand on. This double-minded man he refers to as one whose heart is divided between the world and God. Like a wife who has a husband and a boyfriend. Purify our hearts. And then on the other hand, you know, we're called to full and total allegiance to Jesus. And so before anyone says that, that's what David said, that's what John said, that's what James said. Jesus didn't say that. No, Jesus did say that. If you go to Matthew 22, 37, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. He didn't say with part of your heart. He didn't say with a divided heart. This is what we call impurity. And when Jesus says be pure in heart, he means for us to give him 100%. So just let that sink in. So what does this mean for us? Well, what we need to understand is this. Jesus is concerned with our hearts. I mean, remember when he said, guys, it's not enough to clean up your act on the outside. His aim is not to reform the manners of society. For example, Jesus isn't going to be satisfied if there are no acts of adultery in the world. Remember what he said. If even you look at another woman with lust, you've already committed adultery. Guys, it's all about the heart. That lust that he's referring to is a seed that's planted. And when it grows, what does it grow into? It grows into adultery. But Jesus is saying, don't even plant the seed. Get rid of it completely. 
This is not about behavior modification, guys. He came to change the hearts of sinners like you and me. We need heart transplants, and he's the great heart surgeon. And what we need to understand is that the heart is what you are. I mean, in all of your secret thoughts and feelings, that's what you are. And only you and God know what's in there. And see, God cares more about what's going on in, the, in your secret thoughts and feelings than what's coming out on the outside. You remember what Samuel said, man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. From the heart are all, are all issues of life. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So I will just keep repeating myself. The heart is utterly crucial to Jesus. Grasp this now. Jesus did not come because we just have some bad habits that need to be broken. He came into the world because our hearts are disgusting and need to be purified. And this goes for every single one of us. The only difference between us is those who recognize this and those who don't. Recognition leads to change. I mean, John Piper stated this so clear in one of his sermons. It brought this whole heart issue to life for me. He, he pointed out how impotent our government is. So think about how our government, whether it be local, state, or federal, handles problems in our society. I mean, CBS had just aired this documentary called The Vanishing Family, A Crisis in America. And the statistic given was that of over 60% of all babies born to unmarried mothers, only 1% was given up for adoption. So think of how many children are growing up without a father in this society and what harm is being caused. And go look up the, the, the statistics on kids who grow up in this environment. It's, it's a tragedy. And what does our government do? Well, all they do is try to find ways to ease the financial burden on the mothers and the children. Nothing wrong with helping the less fortunate, but what about the root of the problem? And this is all because of a heart issue. Now, do you see how amazingly relevant the words of Jesus are in a situation like this? I mean, Jesus says, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder and adultery and fornication. So in our example, all these babies born to unmarried mothers and fathers are born from what? Fornication. So therefore, Jesus would say, if he were here preaching this sermon, if people would be pure in heart, they would be blessed. Their society would be blessed. This issue of, of these babies being born out of fornication, it wouldn't be a problem. It wouldn't be an issue. We wouldn't need to depend on the government if we would just depend on Jesus to fix the problem. So are you, are you seeing this? And guys, this goes for all problems in society. It's a heart issue, period. And why is this important? Because we're so bombarded by human tragedies of poverty and crime and abuse and war and neglect that we, we fall into temptation of agreeing with the world and how it solves the misery of human issues. We begin to believe that it doesn't matter if God is involved. He can't fix anything. But Jesus comes to us right now and says, blessed are those who are pure in heart. Not first because they change society, but first because they see God. Seeing God is the goal, my friends. And when we see him, it changes us. And when we are changed, guess what? Society changes. It's a byproduct of our changed heart. And here's the truth. When we abandon the goal of seeing God as our culture has, as our culture is, and as our culture will continue to do, we watch culture collapse in ruin. Friends, God is the one who purifies the heart. And the way he does this is through our faith in him. Proverbs 3, 5 tells us clearly, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Focus on this and you will see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. What does this mean? I scratch my head on this one because I believe there is more than meets the eye here. I took notice at what we inherit for being peacemakers. It says those who are peacemakers shall be called sons of God. And the first thing I thought was true children, they resemble their father. So what I immediately think of is what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not telling us how to become sons of God, but more importantly, he's simply saying that sons of God 
are peacemakers. People who are peacemakers will be recognized by the world as children of God. And if we want to see how to become a son of God, we, we can look at Galatians 3.26. It says, to all who received Jesus and who believed in his name, God gave the right to become children of God. And it is through faith alone. In other words, we become his children by trusting in Christ for our forgiveness and for our hope. But that's not it. Now there is some evidence that, that must show in our lives. I mean, Jesus says that people who have become sons of God have the character of their heavenly father. And we know God is a God of peace. We know he is a peacemaker. The whole history of redemption, fully climaxing in the death and resurrection of Jesus, was God's strategy to bring about a just and lasting peace between evil and himself. I mean, we, we are rebels, guys. And, and when we become his children, that changes. We surrender to him and we, we as his children have his character. What he loves, we love. What he pursues, we pursue. When he sacrifices, we sacrifice. And how is this peace generated in us? The Holy Spirit. Peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit and it only can be worked out in us by the Spirit. We cannot earn this. We owe our new birth to God's grace. Our faith comes because we are born again. And this faith is worked out by God's Spirit. And the fruit of this working out is a peace. I mean, think about this. This is mind-blowing to even think about. So, so who do we push for peace as we walk with Jesus? I mean, Jesus thinks of, of peacemaking as all the acts of love by which we try to overcome the hostility between us and other people. And how is this done? Well, we pray for those who persecute us. And how hard is this? I mean, do you and I do this? Well, I'm probably not. I mean, I know I'm guilty of this. I suck at this. I don't want to pray for enemies. I want to choke slam them. Okay. But Jesus is commanding us to pray for them. So we must. Get rid of animosity. Get rid of grudges. Forgive people. Let go of anger towards others. I mean, we must not feed animosity by ignoring and avoiding those who have hostility with, with us. That, that impulse is straight from hell, my friends. I mean, God allowed his son to be killed to make peace with us. So how on earth could we ever allow our pride to well up and keep animosity alive. Instead, we seek peace. We long for peace. It's what God desires and what he longs for. So it should be what children of God desire and long for. I mean, are you getting this? But what this does not mean is that you compromise with, with God or what he stands for to keep peace. Remember what Jesus said, don't you dare think I came to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And when we seek peace and pursue righteousness, the world will come against us. And when this happens, we, we keep going. And this leads us to the final beatitude. And, and this, this is what a life in Christ will bring you. Verse 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Guys, don't we in America live in the Disneyland of the world? I mean, we don't experience persecution like our brothers and sisters who live in other countries. And as it stands today, we still have religious freedom. I mean, you know, obviously we're losing this freedom more and more, especially in the last two years. I mean, Christianity has become a lot less popular among Americans. So, you know, obviously a little bit of persecution has been ramping up. And it will continue to ramp up as we move towards the end. But it's not like what our brothers and sisters around the world are facing and have been facing. But the Bible clearly states here that persecution, it's inevitable. The Bible says it. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul tells us this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. It doesn't say might be, some of you will be. It says if you're living in Christ, you will be persecuted. Acts 14.22, Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas were on mission reminding Christians that they must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. John 15.20, in Matthew 10.25, it was Jesus who said, if you follow me, expect to get treated the way I did. And what happened to Jesus? Well, he faced harsh opposition and threats throughout his entire ministry. 
and ultimately was brutally murdered. I mean, how could Paul and Luke and Jesus say such things? Well, here's the reality. There is such tension between the message and the way of life of Christians on the one hand and the mindset and the way of life of the world on the other hand. Conflict is inevitable. And you have two clashing natures, the nature of fallen man and the nature of the new creation in Christ. Therefore, it doesn't go out of date. It was true then and it is still still true today. And it will be true until the end. Sooner or later, a a deeply God-centered Christian will be mistreated for the things he believes or, or the life he lives. So let's briefly touch on why persecution comes. Notice the text says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. We must recall the structure of the Beatitudes. We come to Jesus broken because of our neediness. We are, we are repentant and we mourn for our sin. The, the mourning brings us to a place of humility and meekness as we surrender. And this change of heart leads to a hunger for Jesus and purity. I mean, this, this change leads a life in Christ, which is the pursuit of mercy and, and the pursuit of peace and purity. And this goes against the world's values, and so the world persecutes you for it. I mean, you see, the, you see the conflict? You see the rub? It's really that simple. When you live your life in a way that puts God at the center and the world it not, when they see you doing this, it convicts their hearts and it highlights their darkness. And so their response is to attack and possibly get rid of you. And let me give you a few examples. I mean, if you are one that cherishes your virginity, and waiting until marriage, your life and your your pursuit of that will be an attack on people's love for free sex. Or if you're if you're one that doesn't drink alcohol, your life will be a statement against those who love alcohol. If you pursue um, self control in your diet, you, your life will indict excess eating. If you are one that lives simply and frugally. You will show how silly and excessive living a life of luxury is. If you're one that, that lives humbly under God, you will, your life is going to expose the evil of pride. I mean, for those who have grown to become more spiritually minded, those who see through a different lens, and you know who you are, how are those who are worldly responding to you? They, they stiff arm us. They, they, they look at us as, as we're the weird guys. Why? Well, because our mindsets absolutely clash with theirs. So they avoid us. Old friends no longer reach out. For family, they ostracize you. Following Jesus is a lonely road. But Jesus told us to rejoice and be glad when we're persecuted. And this is probably the hardest command in the Bible, if we're going to be honest. I mean, how can he say this? I mean, Jesus knows beyond the shadow of a doubt, that the reward of heaven will more than compensate for any suffering we must endure in the service of Jesus. And how do we live this? Well, we seek God's kingdom every moment of the day. We keep our eyes fixed on eternity. We focus on heavenly things, not worldly things. We must because the world is coming against you and I for our faith in Christ. And friends, there is good that comes from persecution for us. It takes our eyes off of the earthly rewards. It strips away our superficial belief. It strengthens the faith of those who endure. Guys, the fact that we are being persecuted proves that we are being faithful to Christ. Faithless people, they go unnoticed. A real Christian never goes under the radar. Okay? You stand out like a sore thumb. But take heart. It says we will see God. We will receive mercy. We are called sons of God. Comfort is coming. We will inherit the earth. Satisfaction is coming. Vindication is coming. And we must see the Beatitudes the way they are. They are an announcement of how fortunate people are who already possess the power of the kingdom. That's us, church. I mean, think of all I said through the lens of identity. And now knowing all of this, what does this mean for us? Will we step into it? I mean, Jesus is announcing how blessed we are. Does it mean we won't suffer? No. Does it mean life is going to be easy for us? No. What it means is this. We're part of the kingdom that will be fully realized in the age to come. So until then, we wait with great anticipation. We wait with full confidence and assurance. 
knowing this. I mean, living this should change us. And that change is imperative. Without it, there is no true salvation, guys. I mean, those who live with this false idea of salvation, say the prayer and you're good, need to understand that, that it says that nowhere in the Bible. I mean, how can we listen to this episode, what you're listening to right now, and the breakdown of these Beatitudes and think that it, saying a prayer is all you need? No, no, these Beatitudes make it very clear that there are major implications that we must address and, and it's going to take your entire life. From beginning to end, the Sermon on the Mount cries out, get yourself a new heart, become a new person. Judgment is at the door. And look at the way Jesus ends the sermon. Anyone who hears these words and does not obey them is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. In other words, a life of disobedience to these Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount will stand in judgment no matter what we said or what we so-called believed. Guys, Jesus doesn't care if you call him Lord. Let there be evidence that he is Lord. But that's not all. These Beatitudes also contain an invitation to become this person. If you're not in Christ, you can be in Christ. But you must surrender and come to him empty-handed. You must recognize your need for him and he welcomes you. And guys, he welcomes you as you are. My friends, this is all for this week's episode of Straight Talk with Celine. Come back next week as we continue our journey through the hard teachings of Jesus. Next week, we will jump into the second hard teaching as we talk about God and money. Uh-oh. Goodness, here it comes. But Jesus gives us a choice. And sadly, money seems to be a dominant factor in all of our lives. But what did Jesus teach on this? And what does this mean for us? And guys, I'm going to say this every single week. We need to continually be asking ourselves the question, what does this story of God mean to us? And what does it mean for us? Who are we in light of God? Friends, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus and you are following him, the Bible proclaims the following. You are chosen. You are a royal priest. You are a part of a holy nation. You are God's very own possession. You have been called out of darkness. You've been called out of the grave and into his wonderful light, into a life, and now are, are called to be a bold proclaimer of his glory. Do you know this? Are you living this? If you are, great. If you're not, that's okay. Most are not. But come back next week because the point of this podcast is to walk this journey together. Guys, I'm currently learning myself. Put together, we will learn our identity in Christ and we will step into it. My friends, thank you for joining me on this episode of Straight Talk with Celine. I hope our time together has helped you take a small step towards living out the fullness of who you've been called to be. If this episode encouraged and edified you, please take a moment and think of that person that needs to hear this and do me a favor and share it. Jesus has called us to be ambassadors. Let us never forget that the mission is to know Jesus and to make him known. I love you all with the love of Christ. Until next time, take care.